Well, good morning again. Um, so, January, we started preaching through the book of First Corinthians, and we have this great little subtitle, The Mess God Loves, because you guys are a mess, and I wanted to remind you that God loved you. <laughs> and uh, increasingly, since January, I've been aware that I'm also a mess, and God loves me, and my family is a mess, and God loves me. So some of you who were here last week know that we uh, had to call it last minute right before the service started. We had an emergency with one of our children. Um, everything is functional at the moment. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to address that briefly. Um, we're just, you could pray for us. We're dealing with some stuff with one of our children, sickness and behavioral, behavioral stuff, and um, we are a mess. God loves us. We're loved by you. Thank you for loving us, and keep praying for us. Uh, part of the reason for me to decide last minute to go to the emergency room rather than power through and preach, well, there's a lot of reasons, um, but one of them was I met Patrice and felt instantly like he was an anointed man of God who should have the pulpit last Sunday. Amen? Those of you who are here, I already felt weird preaching last Sunday. That was the plan, right? Because Patrice is a, is a missionary pastor from Cameroon who is here in the States raising funds, building new partnerships, and, and everybody has taught me throughout my pastoral career, you don't let somebody like take your pulpit and preach if you've never met them, so I'm like, eh, I've never met this person, I don't know if I should give them my pulpit, all of my teachers tell me no. Well, I met Patrice, and I was like, you're an anointed man of God, you're here from Africa, you should just preach, and he's like, I love preaching, I'm a pastor, I'll do it, go to the, go to the doctor with your kid, I was like, amazing, so... Uh, that was part of it, and I just was so glad that he was here. Um, and so now we're going to transition to talking about head coverings. So could you stand as I read our text for today? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 2 through 16 this morning. Follow along as I read. It's on page 958 in the Pew Bible if you don't have your own. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord it is not independent in nevertheless in the Lord woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature teach itself that if a man wears long hair it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. 
Lord Jesus, would you help us to understand this text rightly and apply it rightly for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Well, if you are visiting Park, you're like, what a weird passage. Why are we looking at this one today? And I see a few guys with long hair in our fellowship and a few hats and a bunch of women without head coverings. And so what are we going to do with this text this morning? Well, we are preaching through this book. And today, this is the section that we land on. Next week, Teen Challenge will be here, so we'll be pausing. And then the week after that, I'm out of town. Uh, I'm, I'm actually out of town next week and as well doing a wedding. And then I have family vacation the week after that. Matt Fry is going to be here preaching the last part of this chapter. And then we're going to keep working through this book the rest of the summer until we finish up. And here's our text for today. This passage is a doozy. It's an interesting one, right? And this is one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible, because I wouldn't have just cherry-picked this passage. And, and it's here, it's in the Bible, and we have to wrestle with it and figure out what God is trying to communicate to his people, to his church. How many of you came to church today ready to engage this controversy that has been splitting societies and churches for thousands of years? You were just ready for a few good songs, a nice little dedication, and then to head home for your Sunday brunch. Well, we got a little bit of work to do. And this passage may seem irrelevant to a lot of us in our, in our cultural context, but it's so relevant for so much of the world. Last Sunday, when I was supposed to be preaching this passage and instead I was sitting at the ER, I started noticing, because this was fresh on my mind, I, no- I noticed other families coming into the emergency room in Minneapolis. 14 other families entered when we were sitting in the emergency room waiting. And out of the 14 families that entered, seven of those families, the women had head coverings, 50%. So it's very culturally relevant. Around the world, even in our own communities, if we're paying attention, this idea of head coverings, it affects cultures and religions and even Christians around the world. If we were a part of a church in another continent, we would have more of these conversations. And so I think it's important for us as Western, mostly Western American Christians gathered here this morning to engage this and to think about it. I want to give us a framework as we dive into this passage to help us to help kind of put some, some categories in place for the tension that we feel with some of these biblical texts. And so let's, uh, let's walk through this. I want to look at, first of all, I want to remind us that there is a creation order, right? The Bible communicates to us God's creative order. It's the timeless truth of God's created order, which are good, right, and necessary for human flourishing. Yet they're often countercultural, right? So the Bible whether we're in Old Testament, New Testament, whether we're in Corinth, whether we're in Ephesus, regardless of what city, continent, language we're in, there is timeless truths that this book has that God created and ordered the world in such a way that humankind needs to fall in line with what God calls good for us to flourish. We don't flourish if we push back against what our creator created and set in motion and said is good. And so that exists in Scripture, and some of that is in this passage today. What also exists in Scripture and just in life is this cultural disorder. The the pull and influence of the dominant culture, whatever culture, whatever dominant culture you're living in and influenced by, which is often contrary to God's created order. For the Corinthian church in the first century, it was the Greco-Roman culture in Corinth. For you and I today, it's Midwestern American 
in St. Louis Park, whatever Midwestern American is, or whatever brand or flavor of your Midwestern American culture is, or maybe you came from one of the coasts, or maybe you're here from a different country for a period of time, and you're like, this is a weird culture, I don't get it, it is. If you've grown up here, you don't think it's weird, you think other cultures are weird. Other cultures move here, and they're like, this is a weird culture. And, and there's some good things in our culture, there's some redeemable things in our culture. Not everything in culture that is not Christian is bad. But we need to keep in mind that there is this cultural disorder that all people live in. We have it here in America, the Midwestern American cultural disorder, whatever that is, whatever country, whatever continent, whatever culture you're in, there's a certain disorder that pushes against God's order and what God has established and declared and designed as good. It's human nature. We, we, we try to do things our own way. And the church lives in the tension of these two worlds, Right? We live in this pressure cooker of what God has said is good and what the world is trying to discover to be good and push back on some of what God has said is good. And in, in, this is just the, the life that we live. This is the first century church, the church in Corinth. This was their issue. They, they had become Christians, followers of Jesus, followers of, the, of Yahweh and his son, Jesus, Yeshua, walking with him, trying to figure out what, what does it look like for us to, to be faithful to this God in the midst of this cultural context. And in this, there was, there was tension, right? And this is what Paul is dealing with here. If you remember, look at, look at the end of chapter 10. He says, so, uh, verse 31 of chapter 10, he says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Remember, he had been talking about some cultural disorders about food sacrifice to idols and how the church handles this. He says, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so he's moving. Remember, this is one letter. And so it's kind of weird, even how we, how we preach and how we do our Bible studies, we chop these things up, and it's, it's one cohesive thought that really needs to be held together. And so he's saying, imitate me, God has called us, Jesus told us this when he walked among us to love God and to love others. That's the, the greatest of all the commandments. You can sum them up and boil them down into love God and love neighbor. And so he's dealing with specific ways for us to love neighbor in our cultural context. And this is the tension that we feel. Here's God's created order. Here's our cultural disorder. What does it look like for us to be faithful to God and to love neighbor in that pressure cooker? And he's reminding us that there's freedom of conscience. He's taught us about this, that people may have different levels of conscience. And so if you have a certain conviction as you read 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, and we're going to talk through that, if you have a certain conviction as we look at it that, that women should have head coverings and that men shouldn't wear hats, you can interpret it that way. That can be your conviction, and you should do that. If you have a conviction that that was a cultural thing for first century Corinth, and you don't need to wear a head covering, and men can wear hats, you can do that. That's part of what Paul is engaging here, that there's people in churches who are going to have different convictions, and we need to figure out how to live those convictions out and love one another in the midst of those convictions. And so this is how Paul has been instructing the church. It's in the context of freedom of conscience and love of neighbor. Now, as we, as we go through this, I, I, I think, and there's so many different 
Bible scholars and historians who interpret this passage differently. It's one of the most heated and differently interpreted, differently interpreted passages in Scripture. Interpreted? What did I? Thank you. Got my linguistic guy up here helping me out. Um, and so I don't know that my interpretation is right. A lot of really wise Bible scholars disagree. A lot of really wise Bible scholars agree, and there's many different takes. And so we hold these things loosely and humbly, and we want to come at the text with humility and say, God, would you guide us? And ultimately, would you help us to love one another? Here's, here's how I think this passage breaks out. I actually think verse 3 and then 7b through 12 is speaking to God's creative order. And then verses 4 through 7a and 13 through 16, he's kind of engaging the cultural disorder of Corinth. And so we'll, we'll get into that. We'll talk about that. Let's start at verse 2, and I'm just kind of going to walk through this passage. Verse 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Remember, at the end of 10, he's, he's reminding them to, to seek not their own advantage but the advantage of others. Paul himself is an example of this. And then he says, I commend you. Usually he's correcting the church in Corinth. Here he's saying, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions. And there's a tension even there because a lot of Paul's letters and a lot of Paul's instruction are telling the church to stop putting tradition above relationship. But in context here, verse, or chapter 11 is going to start a few chapters where he addresses the public worship gathering. When the church gathers to worship together, how they operate, how they do things. And so I think he's saying you maintain the tradition and he's encouraging them to maintain the tradition of how a, a church family functionally gathers to worship. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts. He's going to talk about communion. He's going to talk about prophecy. He's going to talk about love. He's, this is where we're going. He's going to talk about head coverings. And so when this church gathered, there was something specific in their culture and in their gathering related to head coverings that he's addressing. And he's saying, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But, right? It's like, hey, you're doing really great, but you've experienced that from a boss, from a friend, from a spouse, from a coworker. Hey, that was a great job, but Paul has a little correction, a little instruction for them. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So he's, he's diving in here now to this creative order, the, the designed goodness and difference between man and woman is what I really think Paul's getting at here. See, Jesus had come on the scene, and he had showed the religious elites and the religious institution and the Greco-Roman world a different way of gender relation. In the religious traditions, in the political tradition, in the culture of Greco-Roman world, women were devalued, they were disregarded, they were oftentimes property rights. And Jesus came and he walked among them and he gave women dignity and value and equality to men. He included them. Some of his disciples were women, right? The, the ones who discovered the empty tomb were women, and they ran back to tell the apostles. And Jesus modeled for us this incredible inclusion of and empowerment of women. And then in his ascension back into heaven and the establishment of the church, they struggled to know how to take this new radical example and teaching of Jesus and apply it to their culture and context, Right? There's this created order. Jesus upheld God's created order that men and women are different and distinct but equal and valuable. 
which was radical in their culture. And so now they're left trying to figure out in this pressure cooker in the middle, how do we, how do we apply this? How do we live this teaching out? And here's where Paul is addressing that. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, writes this. I think it's really helpful. He says, Paul's underlying point, referring to this passage, seems to be that in worship, remember he's addressing the public gathering of the church here. In worship, it is important for both men and women to be their truly created selves, to honor God by being what they are and not blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. God's creation needs humans to be fully, gloriously, and truly human, which means fully and truly male and female. In worship, men follow the dress and hair code which proclaims them to be male, and women the codes which proclaim them to be female. These codes, of course, are different in different cultures, so we must be wise in our own cultural adaptation of these codes, but the marks of difference in sexes should not be set aside. And where I land as I interpret this passage with the commentators, similar to what you heard there, that one of the main issues here is that the church in Corinth, based off of how they were addressing their head coverings, they had taken this new ethic of Jesus of inclusion and equality and empowering women, and they had gone too far. They didn't know how to nuance this into their culture. They had gone too far, and they started to blur the lines between male and female. Does it sound familiar? We live in a culture that, that values gender fluidity. That is a cultural disorder which rubs up against the creation order when God created them male and female. He created them and he said it is good. And this is an issue that, that, that they're actually dealing with here in Corinth. And so, verse 3 again, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I think this is actually a creation order that Paul is proclaiming. The, the big question here is, what does he mean by head? There's three different ways that people interpret head. One is just the physical head, right? And, and, and he does talk about the head, the head covering the hair, and so that might come into play a bit. There's also the symbol of authority, like a headmaster of a school, or the head of a department, that's a way that the word head could be interpreted, or head as an origin, like the, the head of a river. And so different people interpret Paul's use of the word head here differently. I think there's a little bit of all three going on because he uses some of this imagery all throughout here, but I think the overarching metaphor that he's getting at here, and this is where, this is where our cultural disorder is going to feel the most tension with creation order, I think he's actually pointing to authority, to, to, to like someone going out front, leading, initiating. And I think that because look at verse, so we're looking at verse three, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Throughout the New Testament, when Paul uses the word head towards Jesus, he's the head of the church. He is the authority of the church. He's also the source of the church. And so I, I think either one of those could apply, but he refers to Jesus as the authority, the head of the church, the cornerstone of the church, the, the one who everything is built on, and, and he's saying that the head of every man is Jesus. We're not self-made men. We have a head. We have an authority. We have a master. He says the head of a wife is her husband. That seems tricky and tough, right? 
and it is. But I think Paul's using these words the same. The same way that any man, single or married, here he's actually dealing with married people in the church, so singles, sorry again, there's another shot towards marriage. Um, We're so glad that you're here. We need you, we need you, we need you. Um, he's, He's addressing, blurring the lines of gender, and it and some of it is impacting marriages in the church. See, and I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife, her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So Jesus himself has authority that he submits to. In this creative order, God's created order, he put man and woman into relationship together, co-equals, co-heirs. But what the Bible teaches is that men need to lead. They have an authority and a responsibility on their shoulders for their family. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and and the serpent tempted them to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they do it, Yahweh shows up and he addresses Adam. Adam bears the responsibility for the sin that has affected his family. Now, this doesn't mean that, that wives don't have any responsibility, that, that wives can just do whatever they want and it all falls on the man, but there's this initiation thing for men to lead, to sacrificially lead their family. This is what Paul teaches in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. This is the, the created order that I believe Paul here is reminding the church of. And then in verse 4, he gets into, um, he gets into the cultural disorder. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, that could mean physical head. I think it means his head, Jesus, right? In verse 3, Paul has said that Jesus is the head of every man. And so, to pray and prophesy with your head covered in this context, in this culture, it dishonors Jesus. But every wife who prays and prophesies, and notice, verse 5, I don't know what to do with this yet. But verse 5, it says that every wife who prays or prophesies, so there are women praying and prophesying in the church, gathering. Okay? He's not, and there's other places where there is an encouragement for women to be silent, and actually I think that that translation silent in 1 Peter, it's it's a bad translation, we'll talk about that some other day. Um, But there is an encouragement, there is an allowance, there are women praying and prophesying in this context, in this church, and he doesn't tell them, them to stop. But he gives a certain way that they are to pray and prophesy. But every wife who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So in this cultural context, for them to pray or prophesy in the church gathering, they ought to have their head covered because if their head is uncovered, they dishonor their head. Who's their head based off the flow of this? The the husband is being referred to as, as, as their authority. I know. I hear it. This is a sacrificial die-to-self authority. It's not awesome. I'm an authority around here. Y'all better listen up. A good authority feels the weight and the burden of that, and they don't take advantage of that position. And like the scriptures call us, if you are in a position of authority, that means you die to self for the good of others. That's the kind of authority that scripture talks about. But remember now that it's saying that, that, that a wife, she dishonors her husband if she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. 
Because in this cultural context, from the best that we can understand, in Corinth, in the first century, there were a lot of cultural nuances, whether it's prostitution, whether it's single, unmarried women, for them to have their head uncovered, it communicated that they were available for either a hookup, it's like the modern, or the ancient bumble, or Tinder, I don't really know these things, I hear that that's where you go to hook up. That's like an ancient symbol of I'm ready to hook up. You're walking the streets of Corinth and your head is uncovered as a woman. You're communicating that I am available. I'm unmarried. And so in this context, for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered, it's communicating I'm, av- I'm unavailable. It's like going into certain situations and taking your wedding ring off. You, you go out with your friends one night and you take your wedding ring off because you don't want people to see that you're married. And so that's part of the issue, the cultural disorder here. But the other part of the cultural disorder here is that there were cultural signs like head coverings for women and no head coverings for men. Those were culturally ordered ways to distinguish between the genders. And here Paul is concerned that when the church gathers that they honor God's good creative order about gender. That man and woman are different, equal in status, equal in worth, equal in love, equally loved by God, equally gifted, yet they're different and distinct. And that's part of God's glory in creation is creating things different and distinct, like night and day, like land and water, like animals of the air and animals of the ground, and men and women. Amen? This is God's good created order. And in Corinth, when they are disrespecting the, the created order and over-adapting to this new ethic of the equality of men and women, they're communicating something that God doesn't want to be communicated, that gender doesn't matter, that difference doesn't matter, that, that authority doesn't matter. Actually, it does. Nothing exists without authority. Have you ever been a part of a business or a company or a country where there's not some kind of chain of command and responsibility? Life doesn't work that way. God created order. Even in the Trinity, there's an order. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there's love and equality in the Godhead, but Jesus willfully humbles himself to God the Father as head, as, it, as Paul said. The head of Christ is God. And so let's continue on. He says, For if a wife will not cover, I'm in verse 6, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful, disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head. So that's all, I think, cultural disorder. He's engaging the cultural issue in Corinth and the over-adaptation of that cultural issue. And then he comes back into created order in the second half of verse 7. I think when he says, for a man ought not to cover his head, again, it's related to that culture. Now, if you wear a hat in America, even... Yeah, I see a couple hats out there. Good. I thought about wearing one myself, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe someday. I'm not there yet. I'm not bold enough yet. And also, I don't know that I'm fully interpreting this passage perfectly because people disagree with me, and I want to be humble. Um, I, for a man to wear a hat in our culture, it's more of a, it's a fashion statement or a lazy thing because you didn't want to do your hair or a practical thing because you're trying to keep the sun off your head. In our culture, you don't look at head coverings as signifying male and female. Same thing for women. It's fashion, it's practical, it's, right? For the most part in our culture. 
in American Western culture, but it's different in different cultures. And so here in verse 7, kind of that whole area, I think Paul is engaging the cultural disorder. He's saying for a man not to cover his head, I think that's, that's bound to the specific situation in Corinth. But then he gets back into created order. He says, on the second half of verse 7 here, he says, since he, man, is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What does he mean by that? Both man and woman are created in the image and likeness of God. You'll notice that Paul didn't say that woman is, is in the image of God of man, right? She's the glory of man. And so glory, like so many words, it has different, different uses in different moments. There's different interpretations of it. I think what he's saying here is that man was created first and woman taken out of the rib and God breathes breath of life into the woman. Man is the image and glory of God. Woman is the, the glory of man, not the image of man, the glory of man in the sense that like an apple tree produces apples, right? What's the, what's the glory of an apple tree? The thing that it produces. And so there's this regenerative thing to humanity that, that woman comes from man. The first woman, Eve, came from man, from the rib of Adam, and God breathed his life into Eve. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. See there in verse 8? This is a created order. It's, it's how creation happened. He says, neither was, man created, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This can be very wrongly applied and interpreted. It doesn't mean that men have, that all men have authority over all women, or that even in a marriage, a husband has like domineering authority over a wife. It's sacrificial, loving, die-to-yourself leadership. But he is saying that neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You remember, God created Eve out of Adam to be Adam's what? Helper. I heard a few like hesitant responses, right? Because that even seems demeaning in our cultural context. To be a helper? Keep in mind, God is called the helper of Israel. The Holy Spirit is called the helper of the church. So to be a helper is not a demeaning role, but... Our culture has made you feel demeaned by the word helper. God himself is the helper of his people. Also, this doesn't mean helper like, go get me some food, woman. That's not at all what it means. It's that men cannot function without women, amen? amen. And guess what? Women can't function without men. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Look at this. He says, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's in verse 10. Now, one more curveball. What does that mean because of the angels? Some people think that when the church gathers in his pres when the church gathers in person that angels are present and that the angels want to see God's created order honored. Some people think that it's predatorial angels who are looking to sleep with created women like back what happened in Genesis chapter 6. It could be. Actually, it, it's a weird interpretation, but it's a compelling one if you do enough Bible study on this. And then some people think that, so that word angels, it just means a messenger. Some people think it's different messengers coming from different churches who just need to see the order that God created being honored. I don't really know. Verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. You see that? We're, we're interdependent. Women need men, men need women, and we need to honor and value the distinction between women and men. 
Now, there are some generalities between men and women. There's some generalities that hurt men and women. There are so many different cultural ways that this is abused. Even like I said, if you read this passage, it says, but woman for man. Some men, and this is despicable, and if I hear about this in our church, our elder team, we're going to exercise church discipline. If a man takes that passage out of context and says, well, because you were created for me, you do what I say, that's not what Paul is getting at here. He's saying that there is this humble, God-ordered relationship that all of life needs, that men sacrificially lead, and they have an authority, but their authority is underneath God, and with that authority, they lead like Jesus, which means dying to self. How did Jesus love the church? On the cross, not on a throne demanding his nachos, right? And so, die to self. And then he says, verse 11, We're interdependent on one another. For woman was made from man, the first woman, Eve, made from man. And then guess what? Every man after that came from a woman. Right? You know how birth works. And so we need one another. For a woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things, the end of verse 12, and all things are from God. God, Yahweh, order this. He breathed our life into existence. He cares about our functioning and our ordering and how we live our lives. And then verse 13, he closes out here with, again, I think engaging the cultural disorder. He says, judge for yourselves. I love that. Right? Judge for yourselves. Wrestle with the text. Be in relationship. Be in community. Don't just listen to a podcast. Don't just read one author. Don't just listen to your pastor. Wrestle this through together in community. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Long-haired guys, I think this is, this is a cultural, and there's debate on this, but that word nature, I mean, what happens to your hair if you let it go by nature? It gets long, right? And so he can't be saying that doesn't by nature tell you that man's hair is a dis- because if you just let your hair naturally grow, it gets long. In their cultural context, the sign of men with long hair, the, the nature, the impulse, the intuition was, that's how girls look. In their culture, and maybe for some of you, you think that's right for our culture, for men to have short hair, not long hair, but it, it's different, right? Like In our culture, you don't look at a guy with long hair and say, he is a woman or he's trying to be a woman. There are other ways that guys try to communicate that they're trying to become women and blend the gender line and vice versa. And that's a serious thing that we should think about and care about. God cares about order and gender and embracing gender and being true to our God-given gender. But we have to figure out for our context and our culture what is blending the gender lines. It's, it's I think there's an intuition that we know, it's like the same if I, if I was preaching in a skirt versus a guy in Scotland preaching in a kilt. Different, right? If I was up here wearing a pink skirt, I would hope that you guys would say, please stop. You're disrespecting, dishonoring God's, God's, God's created order because culturally speaking, still in our context, in our culture, a man wearing a skirt communicates something. That isn't right. That's what Paul is getting at here about the the long hair for men. It's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given for her covering. And there's debate even if covering means like a 
like a, a veil or a bonnet or just her hair. Um, and then verse 16, he closes out, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do all the churches of God. And so there's church unity here that he's appealing to. There's a non-contentious spirit here that he is appealing to. He's longing for the church to be unified. Let me close this down this morning with just reminding us, oh, all those things, we'll just keep them all up. Let's look at the creation order first. God has created humanity to live in gendered relationships of interdependence, where humble authority, willing submission, mutual respect, and help mirrors the relational independence of the Trinity. That's what's true, regardless of our interpretation of these nuanced, tricky passages. What is also true is that we value independence in our culture and live in a time, we value independence and gender fluidity, right? We also live in a, in a time and a culture when many people have abused authority. And this creates an understandable suspicion and even hatred of authority. And where authority is abused, it is so destructive and awful. And so because of this, because of the tension here between created order and the cultural disorder, the church lives in this middle where, where we need to embrace humble authority and willing submission and mutual respect and help. But in order to do that, it takes a supernatural work of God. And so we gather every Sunday as a church to look to Jesus, the one who did what we're incapable of doing. If, if you're a man or a husband who feels like he has authority and, and you struggle to lead well like Jesus, look to Jesus. If you're a wife who struggles to submit, look to Jesus. If you're a man or a woman struggling with gender and gender identity and what the world has to say about gender and gender fluidity, look to Jesus. I want to close us down this morning with this reminder from the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And as I do, there's communion elements in the pew in front of you. And every week when we gather at Park Community Church, we take communion to look to Jesus. Because we cannot live, we cannot live the life that he designed us to live without his supernatural help. Also, even with his supernatural help, we still have a flesh which rises up and pushes back. And so Jesus is both our example and our substitute. When we look at the scriptures, we look at him as an example, somebody to follow. And then when we take communion, we look to him as a substitute, somebody who lived the life that we're incapable of living, died the death that we deserve, and overcame sin and death in the grave so that we could have new life. And so when you feel led and ready, go ahead and take communion as I read this passage or after I read the passage, and then we'll sing the gospel together. The Apostle Paul writes... Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and he found in, in, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Lord Jesus, as we take communion, as, as we sing this closing song, we confess that you are Lord. May this act of communion be a part of our confession, and may our standing and singing as well be a part of our confession. Lord, may we all, may we all be found humbly submitting our lives to your authority, to your rule, to your reign. Jesus, I think that you are a covering, that you cover us in robes of righteousness. And so we have to worry less about head coverings and these cultural applications of it and, and more about how we've been covered by your righteousness. May we be found in that together. We love you, Jesus. Pray that you would have your way. Amen. Go ahead and take.